Welcome to Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling. Brought to you by Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. If you're interested in learning more, check out manufactured.com. Our guest today is Parker Olson, who is the founder and CEO of Forage. Forage produces delicious low-sugar granola that combines functional mushrooms, healthy and clean ingredients for improved energy, mood, and sleep, and they also produce meal bars. We discuss when he was introduced to mushrooms, going around the country in a bus, finding the right manufacturer, how he got into retail stores, and this distribution opportunity in China. Without further ado, here's Parker. Parker, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Mike, what's happening? I'm pretty good. It's sunny out here and yeah, we're, we're chatting, so it's all good. Sunny in Seattle. That's, that's a sight to see. That's great. That's great. Talk to me a little bit about the beginning. What was your introduction to to mushrooms and like a little bit about the aha moment that led to founding Forage? Yeah, you know, I, I've been I've been asked this recently, and you know, I, I recently I tried to explain it differently from how I typically try and explain it, and it kind of hit me that the the original inspiration for what became the inspiration for Forage was actually, it, it was a dark evening in November on my way home from the gym with my brother when I was in college back in, I don't know, this must have been like 2016, 15, when he had just completed the, um, the Whole30 diet. Um, are, you, are you familiar with tiger blood? I'm not so familiar with ty- that's when you were like you, you do like a diet yeah 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 exactly it's it's it, it's not the actual tiger uh, uh tiger blood but it's if i remember correctly it's when you're on like a whole 30 diet or um or maybe some type of new new diet and correct me if i'm wrong and you're able to maybe experience or see things that maybe you, you didn't normally see or um or, you know, just focused like a lot better or maybe like you're able to run on like less sleep or something. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of this like vague definition that like I feel like the whole 30 kind of popularized it. And it's yeah, it, it can happen in lots of different ways, probably. But people talk about noticing like typically like their five senses improving. So, you know, people report having like better vision right after going whole 30 or like, yeah, being able like sleeping less hours, but like feeling wide awake when they wake up and having like super energetic, like productive days. And anyways, he told me about that. And I, Oh, that always stuck with me. And I was like, damn, that's really interesting. Like I, you can get that from just like eating a certain way. And so when I got out of college and, you know, had, had a, had an income and a bit more time on my hands, transparently to, to be thinking about these things, I decided to go vegan for 30 days. And then that turned into 18 months of trying different nutritional regimens. And one of those months, uh, when I ran out of kind of typical diets, if you will, I, I got into kind of, you know, functional mushrooms and was supplementing w- with those for a month and without any other supplementation. And that month was the month that I felt best. So it was using these different sort of mushrooms that people are supplementing with or, or medicinal mushrooms that, you know, really had a large impact on me over, over that year and a half, you know, what I'll call self-experiment. Um, got it. And obviously you must have enjoyed it, right? Over that, over that period or what, what was it like that that whole experience? 
Yeah, yeah. I think I call it like type two fun. You know, it's like it, it, none of it was super enjoyable in the moment, but it was kind of fun to like go through these challenges and make it through. And typically the first couple of weeks of trying any nutritional regimen or diet sucked and was really challenging for the body to like adapt. Um, but then the last couple of weeks were usually pretty fruitful, um, generally speaking. So yeah, it was good. And so how, so talk to me a little bit. So I guess you're, you're kind of discovering functional mushrooms or, um, and kind of, um, obviously digesting, eating them, um, a lot. Talk to me a little bit about then how you went from, you know, mushrooms and in terms of what you wanted to build, which was, you know, mushroom granola and, that whole and whole side, maybe like the inner the the introduction to what became forage. Yeah, yeah. So I I was getting into into these mushrooms, was supplementing with them, and, and my educational background's in neuroscience. Um, I was originally pre med in neuroscience, and as part of that education, I, I took a course at MIT in high school, and it was all about what different drugs do to the brain. And so I, I understood on, on some fundamental level like what psychedelics are doing to the brain. And so I was curious, like, why these legal mushrooms, you know, were having, you know, really fantastic effects on me and figured, you know, I'm sure there's some similarity with psychedelic mushrooms. It's, it's clearly not the same. Um, but I got, I got really deep into the research and, you know, started looking up all sorts of different mushrooms. And at the time, like, the only ones that were popular were it was like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane. And the reality is, you know, there's probably a slew of 10 to 20 mushrooms that have real medicinal value, probably even more. Um, and within that, you know, we define lion's mane as, as one mushroom and, and the reality or, or cordyceps or any of these mushrooms as one mushroom. The reality is that there could be hundreds, if not thousands of strains that all have different, um, you know, unique, unique um, elements to them. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, I've tried lion's mane once, I didn't like it or I really liked it. You know, those people could be trying different strains completely. And, and there's obviously lots to, there's a lot more to consider than even the strain. Um, so anyways, I, I, you know, kind of dove into the research and started to brew my own, you know, mushroom teas at home and would bring them into the office. And I really just knew I wanted to keep mushrooms in my diet, but I didn't love like the coffees that were available. I didn't want to spend all the time doing my own brews. Um, and so I, I started looking for solutions to like, how do I keep them in my diet while just kind of, you know, eat, eating or, or consuming as I normally would. Um, so I started putting it into like um, an oatmeal. I was doing like oats overnight with it. And then, and then I started making like a granola and that was just like, I started making a granola. We had a really good granola recipe and I just, that sort of sort of took off a little bit, like started to get like people were interested, local cafes were interested in carrying it. I was running taste blind taste tests at the gym and so it sort of fell naturally into granola. And then there was a point early on when, when, when I took a look and be like, Oh, this has been really organic. This is fun. We like granola is granola a good category. And the reality is, is like granola is not a massive category. Um, but what we felt like was people who eat granola, eat granola really consistently. So, so this is a consumer that, you know, if, if we feel like we can make mushroom granola, work then it probably could work in a lot of other categories um so for us it, it felt like a good category to kind of start with and, and test initially um it also felt like it aligned with the consumer like a granola eating consumer uh, no that's also really interesting and like that you almost you you came to the realization that granola even though people were loving it like it wasn't a big category but at the same time people are very consistent in terms of eating it so you might you, you will then have you know kind of repeat purchase consistent customers maybe won't be like the largest as you say it's like a great starting point in order for in order to found a brand 
um, because you can really build up, it seems like, maybe some customer loyalty if people actually do um, are enjoying it with those repeat rates, which is great. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how you thought, under, I understand a bit how you got to granola, but as you say, like there's could be like thousands of strains, right, of, of different types of mushrooms. So how did you think as well about like product consistency and what the right formulation was? Yeah, you know, at the beginning we knew like, you know, you have to have a product that tastes good, like taste is king. That's been an early saying for a long time. And so we early on messed around with lots of different suppliers of mushrooms, different formats. Uh, we worked with a food scientist and for a bit up front as well to understand like, okay, are, are the, the valuable, excuse me, compounds of these mushrooms eroding through the processing, um, through the processing of the actual product? And if so, how much do you have to include up front for, for there still to be beneficial amounts um, when a consumer is actually consuming? So we went through a lot of that up front um, and, you know, we're testing different suppliers. And for us, we, we eventually found, um, and I got connected with the largest um, vertically integrated mushroom supplier in the United States, and also the largest mushroom strain developer in the world who um, has helped us with, with some post-production um, testing as well. And so for us, like th that was a good fit to like partner with as like they have a lot of capability. This is an $800 million company where they're only branded partnership, you know? And so it's, it's nice to partner with someone who helps provide some of that credibility and, and you know is doing all the right things, but also can help you sort of do some post-production testing as well. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it seems like a great, valuable partner. How how are we able to kind of establish like that relationship when it came to actually picking that um, um and, and and developing that that partnership on the manufacturing side? Yeah, they they just they they heard about me living out of the van and I met their chief product officer and they just loved the story. And for them, you know, it's an eight hundred million dollar company, but they don't have like a ton of money. They don't spend a lot of money like marketing. And so they're like, okay, this is a cool, like we think you'd be a cool partner who's going out there and building a lot of ground grassroots efforts who could help kind of get the word out about our products and who we are as well. It's, it's Monterey mushrooms. So you go to any grocery store in the world and 93% of all brown button mushrooms that you'll find on shelf are, you know, come from their strains of brown button mushrooms. So, so, so they're, they're all over the place. Um, but they don't necessarily have a ton of brand awareness, which is what I think they're looking for, you know, different ways to, to try and gather. I know that, you know, in the first year you um, toured around, you, you came to LA, you, uh, uh, you, it's where we met. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You got a van, you got a bus and, uh, and, and went around the U S which is super cool to follow you along um, on, on LinkedIn with your posts uh, on your posts, and everything like that, even like going on planes and kind of passing out uh, forage and, and uh, uh, to passengers and, and what have you. Um, I would say, what was your approach for distribution? And especially I'd imagine a product like this, it makes the most sense um, in terms of a retail wholesale format. Um, how, what was kind of your process in order, in order to get into retail and, and wholesale? Yeah, good question. We, so we used to run, you know, before the iOS 14 update, if you will, um, we had some really successful ad campaigns that talked about me living in my tent. Cause I read before I moved in, lived in the van. I don't know if you know this about me, but I lived in a, a tent in, in my backyard at the time for, for two years while I was building the product and like doing product testing. And I threw up my bed in my bedroom and we used it. We had like interns in there. It was like our office. We stored stuff in there. It was fun. And there was an ad that talked about that. And the, the category manager at 
uh, Kehi found us and presented us internally, like based off of the ad. And, and so anyways, they reached out and were like, hey, like, you know, we have this new at Kehi program. If you're interested in any of the DCs, we will put you in. And like, it looks like you'd be willing to go build some uh, some retail partnerships. And it looks like you're already in a couple of retailers going direct that that we carry. And so it, it was sort of opportunistic. And we ended up distributing with, with Kehi to start. They're, they're still our, our largest wholesale distributor today. Uh, but they gave us access to a couple of their regions and and we kind of you know strategically picked a couple to sort of test and understand like what market may be more interested than others. Um, so it was more opportun- opportunistic than super strategic, if you will. Um, un- maybe, you know, unfortunately or fortunately. How do you assess now um, going into a new retailer distributor region um, uh, in terms of like making sure you have enough in it? inventory that 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 you're actually able to um take it seriously and um and actually um you know deliver the po and then and then kind of manage also those relationships yeah so it's interesting and something i'll also mention that that may make the conversation slightly more convoluted is and you know it could be interesting to talk about as well because we're, we're having to onboard a new manufacturer to help to help support this initiative but is is we are moving product into Asia soon before any of year. And so it's it's a unique channel in a couple ways. Um, it's a unique channel in the fact that we are getting paid up front and we have no risk of product spoilage or things not selling as soon as as soon as you know they pick up product from us and, and bring it overseas. Um also, like consumer interests are a little bit different, so we we're gonna have to shift the product formula a little bit. Um, but lastly, the the model, the wholesale model in Asia, at least from what we've seen and and what we're looking at, and how we're having conversations with retailers and and our we have one sole distributor there is is instead of it being largely a pull model, which is how I would describe you know a lot of the wholesale retail in in the U.S. Right? It's it appears to be more of a push model, which is interesting. Um, so you know, maybe we can talk about the Asia opportunity in in a second. Um, you know, for us, you know, of course, when we're looking at new retailers, it's you know, we we have a pretty uh, we have pretty solid lead times with our current co-manufacturer um, today, and they're local to us, so it's it's nice we can go and um, you know we can drive over there. So I'm not necessarily very worried about servicing POs per se, but it's more so understanding like, okay, is this actually a good fit? Like, are we going to actually sell product here or not? Is it worth, you know, going on promotion or, or going through the efforts of sending product over or like maybe we have to do a free fill or 50% off up front or whatever. That's always more of a conversation for us right now. Um, you know, we haven't necessarily gotten into the uh, the issue of like being, un- being unable to fulfill POs yet. I think as a starting point, let's talk about the differences between a little bit about pull and push. I'd imagine you're referring to like pull marketing versus push marketing. Is that right? Um in terms of like, in terms of like pull marketing being that like, like, um, the over, the actual customer, um, like the actual consumer kind of like wants your product in store and is kind of pushing maybe retailers in order for do it. And you're spending, you're, you're, you're investing in marketing in order to, to build that kind of customer awareness. Um, so people know your product rather than I'd imagine push marketing is more so like the retailer really wants your product and you're actually, um, and it's it's not as much about marketing and uh, uh, doing uh, marketing per se um, to actually get the consumer involved. It's actually more so trying to get like the retailer on board. Is that roughly right? Or like talk to me a little about 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 how you're thinking about it. 
Yeah, I would say rough, roughly that that's pretty on par. But it, it, in Asia, and it's, so we have an exclusive distribution model with with a with a distributor, and, and the distributor it's it's a unique go to market strategy. The distributor is is the number two importer of cognac into China, which seems odd because that's an alcohol, and we sell health food. Um, but in Asia, and I guess specifically China, they sell like Chinese medicine at liquor stores. And effectively, this distributor like kind of got hit really hard with COVID and they, you know, their bread and butter business was cognac. And now like just chatting with their retailers, it's like, hey, like we really got hit hard. You guys got really hit hard. We think it's interesting, like, you know, like we're following this trend in the, in the Western hemisphere of like some of these Chinese medicines, like making making a kind of a, a run and, and, and growing from a, from a category standpoint, such as some of these medicinal or functional mushrooms, which are like traditional Chinese medicine. So the, the Chinese medicine on shelf in China, from what I'm you know from what I've seen and understand, is like sort of outdated. You know, consumers often will will do like a week of Chinese medicine, maybe once or twice a year, and it's sort of this cleanse. And the idea is is to put out these daily consumable products for a consumer to be consuming Chinese medicine on a daily basis um, in China, right? These consumers understand what, what these mushrooms are. They understand that they're valuable, but they haven't necessarily been available in like convenient formats and they haven't been told or, or talked to about consuming them daily. Um, so the distributor is, is tapping into their retailer network and pitching them on, on this idea of like a daily Chinese medicine alternative. Um, so we're going to market with a couple other brands that have like, you know, there's like a mushroom coffee, there, there is like a mushroom pill supplement, which, which they don't really have available in China, which I find interesting. Um, and a lot of the retailers are, are really excited about it. Um, but when I reference the push model versus the pull model, it's these retailers are incentivized to buy from this distributor and they're incentivized with our current distributor with basically tr what you could think about as travel credits. So this distributor has like a full-time team that works just books travel. So, so they say, Hey, X retailer with a thousand doors, we're going to put you on, we're going to pitch you on, on this, on this mushroom portfolio concept. We think it'll be awesome. And they're like, awesome. That sounds really cool. And then the distributor says, okay, great. If you buy, you know, if you, if you commit to buying, three container loads over the next year like i'll send you and three other people on a 10-day trip it's like wow yeah super yeah. <laughs> no and so and so the retailer is like okay that's sweet i want to go on that 10-day trip i'm interested in in doing this i'm gonna make sure we get this product in and then sell it so i can buy more so so it, it starts being pushed down and these are like and these are like personal trips right but like as an example the the, the president of of this distributor South, he, he sits in South Korea, came in, and visited and spent 10 days between Seattle and then we went and visited the mushroom farm where we get all of our mushrooms down outside of San Francisco. And part of the visit was like putting together like a trip itinerary to like meet one of the vendors and you get to like go to the Pacific Northwest and go to like San Francisco and like, you know, do X, Y, or Z um, as like a potential trip where it's like, oh, if you buy X, you know, if you buy one container, you can do like a week long trip here. If you buy two containers, you can do a 10, 10 day long trip here and so forth and so forth. And those and those perks really do like amount to them actually like the stickiness of them actually staying with the distributors. So in theory, right, I, I'm yet like like we haven't launched yet, but like when, when the president of, of the distributor came out, I mean, we spent 10 days together and like work pretty intimately together and I definitely like saw some some inner workings and it's it's certainly worked for them in the past like it's 
it's a fascinating model. That is a fascinating model. How how then do you obviously you have this you know strategic partnership on the manufacturing side? Um, now, in terms of capacity, will you be fine when it when it comes to capacity on your side of things, or are you also looking for like more manufacturing? Yeah, we are. So, so, so part of what's interesting is like we provide you know like a low sugar offering as part of our like granola. We we also just launched meal bars, also like lower in sugar. But in China, like like we, you know we we've done lots of consumer testing. You know they've probably purchased about one to three thousand units to just like give away, do consumer testing with different age groups and primarily China, some in South Korea, and a large well there's there's two points of feedback. One is like that that they wish there was more sugar. Right. So like the consumer likes things that are sweeter and sugar is seen as like as sort of like a value add to a degree, uh, I guess. And then second off, like like they want it clumpier, which like we hear we hear that here, but it's really hard to get to a clumpier level at such a low sugar point without fake ingredients. And so we are we're going through like our second round. I mean, I can show you right here. I don't know if, if you're recording camera, but like these are all samples of of another basically like iteration on the product that that is a lot clumpier and has a higher sugar profile but is still getting these mushrooms into people's diet right so, so like I, I i'm i'm very like low sugar i believe in that but ultimately you know the, the impetus of of the brand and the focus of the brand is getting these mushrooms into people's diets that can help solve mass health concerns address mass health concerns so for us it's like we're you know we're onboarding a new co-packer that can not only handle this volume but we're also having to like change the and iterate on the formula a little bit um, to, to, to get it better to consumer liking. Um, and then lastly, you know, we've had to think a little bit about warehousing and fulfillment and whatnot um, as well. And on the co-packing side, are you, are you thinking about co-packing in the United States? Does that make sense? Or are you thinking about co-packing as well and maybe establishing more on the, on, on the side um, overseas in China since it might, that might save you on costs? We're going to co-pack in, in the U.S. I mean, we just have our, our whole supply chain here. A lot of our suppliers here, um, it just appears to make more sense. And, and this distributor does runs a lot of freight from the U.S. to China. So, you know, once you're getting up to container loads, it, it's actually not that expensive. It's just a lot of volume. So for us, you know, may, maybe in a couple of years, if it really made sense, but it, that would take a while to build out. And, you know, it's like we want to launch first and see this volume that, that we've been talking about and looking at and, you know, these commitments that we're looking at right now. Um Another interesting part of of the relationship is is part of the contract is the distributor guarantees monthly minimum order quantities. So, and they do that because for them, like in especially like some of their retailer partnerships, like it's very, 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 very bad if they weren't able to fulfill a purchase order by a retailer. So the distributor would rather slightly overbuy and have products go bad than ever be out of stock so it's it's valuable it's there's a lot of value adds to working with a distributor like this and so if something like that it's like okay if we go through year one and you know we're at or above forecast and, and it looks like we're trending that way on on year two you know maybe then you know we could look at okay does asia make sense maybe maybe not but for now it's it's not really part of the conversation wow i mean on your side that 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 also protects you all um, to, uh, uh, for making sure that you can actually produce a lot more products and be less concerned. Um, well, just making sure that you actually don't, um, you're, um, you actually don't sell out, which is, um, which is great. 
because of all these conversations have happened, and of course you're in like the second um, iteration when it comes to product um, uh, creating a um, a higher sugar um, product um, on the granola side. Um, is that is that also on the bar side too? No, we're, we've done some testing with the bars. That they like one of the flavors of the bars sort of as is. It has slightly more sugar than the granola. Um, so we're, we're not going to shift products on that as, as well. No, we're not planning on it. Okay, got it. Um, so has, have you then, because this opportunity came about, put a pause when it, come, when it comes to expanding on, on the U.S. distribution side? A little bit. So, you know, and part of the issue, and, you know, we can talk about this, but with our current manufacturer, like we've seen some erosion in our margin structure for our granola. And so, and we've actually been growing like quite well um, with a lot of our wholesale, but like with the margin erosion, it's like, it's not, you know, it's just like, isn't supporting the business how it should be anymore. And so like part of that is like, okay, we're starting to look at new co-packers. Like we're kind of chatting with this other co-packer that's developing this sort of new product. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, there's definitely growth, but I'm, I've been between the Asia opportunity and then we haven't really talked about it, but we're building, um, we're building like a product line for an influencer, like a 16, 17 million follower influencer. And that's been also like a pretty interesting opportunity. Um, you know, the, the profit sharing is definitely like really positive for us and that's because we're doing all the work. Right. But from, from, from some early testing, like, it seems like, like there's definitely like a lot of demand there of course we'll have to test that and, and, and see what that really looks like but that opportunity as well just looks like a much more profitable opportunity um, to help cash flow the business so it's like right now and like cash is super tight investment super tight like payment terms are are becoming challenging like debt's becoming really challenging like we're looking at cash flowing you know positive cash flowing opportunities and u.s wholesale for the granola isn't necessarily that right now so yes you know when you ask if i'm deprioritizing some of the u.s wholesale i i yeah, no, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Obviously, with the the China opportunity, and then also um, the working with the influencer opportunity, and um, so I'd imagine that this this, this influencer or um, is actually going to be building like their own brand. Um, that this is not going to be Forage, right? Won't be Forage. It's going to be like powered, sort of by Forage a little bit. So we're still going to be using oh, some of okay. the mushrooms that that we deploy, which will be cool. So we'll get some exposure, but it's very much so like their own brand. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting to navigate. Like there, there's been a couple, uh, retailers that have like come out of the woodwork and been like, we would, we would carry your product. And to me, it's, it's kind of like all talk, you know? And it's like, I wouldn't necessarily want to launch in a massive retailer. Like it's, it's a huge financial commitment. Um, but it's cool to see interest. Right. And, and you, you just take it step by step. So how, how also on the inventory side, when you, when you're thinking about obviously fulfilling POs and, and, and what have you, like. How do you make sure, how do you think about as well whether to use cash or debt when you're actually buying inventory? Yeah, I mean, we try and use debt when we can. It's not ever that straightforward. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, we're oftentimes, or at least right now where we're at, we, we're going through manufacturing runs and immediately selling 50 to 75% of it um, into, into purchase orders. And so... That's that's nice. So you know, we we know we're going to get paid for much of that um, up front. <clears throat> so we're trying to we're trying to now finance a lot of our inventory with debt. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's interesting, like in this climate, because we've heard like on like entrepreneurs on this podcast talk about how they might be using cash a bit a, a bit more cash more just because um, just because of the interest rates and what have you. Um, uh, but it is kind of just interesting to see what um, how people are are thinking about using. Using cash and debt. 
I will note on that too. We we have a line of credit through a private investor that has been helpful. So like, we're not we're not looking at complete market rates right now, which is you know. So I, I would just say we, we've come up with somewhat of a unique solution. It's not super lucrative, but it's not as bad as, as a lot of the market rates, and it gives us access to more capital that, than we probably would have access to. Um, <clears throat> some, something we are, you know, grappling with, Mike, and maybe you can weigh in here for your experience, is is from this influencer, you know, launch, our, kind of our go-to-market launch is to do five to 10 iterative launches. So we're going to launch a V1, and, 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 and what we're trying to do is, like, partner with a, with a manufacturer and say, hey, we're gonna, we want to go through five to 10 of these small launches. You know, can you commit to that? Um, because ultimately, like the idea is to get to the end of that and say, okay, we've validated this demand. We have X, Y, and Z partnerships lined up. Um, you know, here's, here's all these customers who we think are going to purchase and then repurchase and repurchase. You know, that, then we're going to start doing really big manufacturing runs. But what we're grappling with is like, you know, thinking about how to best negotiate with manufacturers to you know, likely get them to agree to under their MOQs and then, you know, play this game with us for several months. Um, and, and, and these would all be small launches at, at, at different retailers. No, I'm sorry. Like, like small online, oh, online drops. drops. Okay, so, okay. so like, you know, the influencer would be like, Hey, like we're building our, we're building this bar. This is the version one. Like it's not going to be perfect, but like only, you know, we're only going to do 200 orders, right? Like, if you want to be part of version one, 200 orders, and then we're going to collect your feedback and then we're going to make a version two, like three weeks later. So you're kind of like, yeah, you're, you're, you're iterating in, in public. You're doing all of your, all of your iteration in public. So that, that, that makes sense in terms of, um, that I'd imagine challenging to actually tell manufacturers, Hey, this is, you're going to lower your, um, minimum order quantities. But at the same time, if you actually stick with us being a manufacturer, then as a manufacturer, then, um, long term, this could be like a really good opportunity for you. Yeah. So I don't know. We're, we're grappling with how to how to how to approach that best and leverage it appropriately and figure out as well. We're we're, we're going to try and pre-sell every iteration, so we'll be able to pay for the manufacturer and run up front and like you know partner with the manufacturer where it's like, hey, we're going to pre-sell this on Tuesday. We want to run this on Wednesday. Like we will pay you all in full like Wednesday, and then ideally like have them produce Wednesday and then ship out orders like Thursday, right? Something like that. How do you think when it comes to and and I guess this was always I guess part of the plan at least to go outside granola just because granola was a small small market. But how do you then assess when you want to enter a new category that this is the category I want to enter and why did you pick bars? Bars is a very um, uh, there's a lot of bars out there. Like what did you think was was kind of interesting about bars to you? Yeah, and and I will preface like the the big bar categories. A lot of them are like protein energy bars. We, you know, we like to we call ourselves, it's, it's a meal replacement bar, a meal bar. And, and we typically are pitching to breakfast buyers or at checkout. Um, part of the reason we went like meal bar is like, we, we like the idea of an on the go healthy meal. Um, and, and how we're positioning the product is, you know, right now we're really focused on colleges and universities and we're positioning it as like a you know like an on-the-go meal or snack that helps students study. Um, so, so that's been some of the positioning. You know, obviously, yeah, like the bar market, you can look at a lot of the growth, blah blah blah. We we think there's interesting growth to come in the on-the-go meal bar market specifically, and, and you know have seen some data to suggest a lot of people are eating bars as meal bars, um, even though they aren't technically that. So 
trying to touch on that more specifically. Um, and, and there are some other bars in the market that are doing that. And I'm sure we'll get lumped into the bar category in some instances. But the idea is, is to play separately, um, you know, where and whenever possible. When did you think it was the right type um, or timing wise, it was the right time to actually launch a bar? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, that's a good question. We, we, we've kind of been visiting like product innovation quarterly for a long time. And, you know, we just started kind of under product development and, and we got to a point where we're like, hey, we really like this. We think we think the market's in a good spot. Our granola business is now like starting to run and, and requiring less effort. And so, you know, as it's requiring less effort, it frees up capacity to be working on other things. And so th- that was more of the that was more of the discussion versus like, oh, like this month and that year is going to be perfect. Like it'll never be perfect. We, you know, we don't think, but it more had to do with, you know, capacity opening up, um, and starting to look at opportunities that are going to be larger than ultimately the bigger role space. And what was the reception once you launched, um, your bar? Cause I'd imagine that you're then going into your, um, your kind of current retailers that are holding your uh, granola saying, Hey, we now have this new product bar, uh, we now have bars, which is a, obviously uh, a different, uh, granola. What was over, overall, um, reaction and, and, and was it difficult to kind of get them over the line to also, um, uh, to also, um, sell your bars? Yeah, I would say it's been positive. We actually haven't really like launched with any retailers yet. It's more been like an FYI. We're, we're mostly online. We're under review in several spots, but actually not with, grocery with us grocery retailers so we want to build the business initially um through what we refer to as more cash flowing channels and opportunities so we're looking at at some more like direct business that's why i mentioned colleges and universities um and we're really focused on selling it as like a snack that helps students study um and you know are under review with some universities that are you know think 30 plus thousand and, and we would be selling direct um into them and put at you know checkouts around campus etc um, and so ultimately want to build initially the product line to be like a cash flowing, positive cash flowing product line versus just like jumping into wholesale U.S. retail um, and, and starting with that slog uh, versus building something that, you know, is maybe a bit more profitable up front um, and then looking at some of those other opportunities. How how also have you thought about since you obviously have a, a, um, a D2C business um, or, a, or an e-commerce business and and selling your own site. And then as well, you also have a retail business and, and a wholesale business. How do you also approach pricing on like those two channels? Is it, is it pretty consistent? Is it, um, is it more expensive in one area? You know, we used to be like super, super consistent. And I've heard takes that go back and forth. Um, you know, for us, we've done a lot of testing and, you know, upfront, I think the thesis is more around, okay, if some, if a consumer is buying from your website, you should, you should reward them. And what we found is like, it, it's, it's, a lot of consumers don't want to buy more than a couple bags of granola. And for us, like from a shipping standpoint, it's just like is more expensive to sell online. So we, so we sell for higher prices online because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to sell at lower prices online. So, you know, we're just trying to make like sound decisions that work for the business, even though, you know, maybe less than ideal, like from a consumer standpoint of to say, Oh, I look, love this brand. I want to go buy directly straight from them, but maybe it's slightly more expensive for us. Um, unless you're willing to buy, you know, tons of bulk, uh, which is a little different, but yeah, I wouldn't say like, I have like a huge thesis there. Um, and a more a wholesale, you know, founder might personally. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how we're currently executing against that. That's really helpful. Um, how, how also do you think a little bit about like inventory cycles and, and, and how much product to produce and do you separate it out when it comes to like DTC online versus like the retail channels and like, what's kind of like different about, about that overall? Yeah. Yeah. I would say our, our you know, our, our DTC is relatively consistent. We, we're, we really don't, 
like to discount product. We, we're not running like tons of sales. And so we have some consistency there. Um, you know, yeah, retail POs can be really lumpy, but I would say just now that we've operated in the space for at least 18 months and, and kind of our, our distributors, like we are starting to see some trends and patterns. And, um, you know, I would say I have effectively done forecasting um, pretty well. And I would, you know, big enabler of that is our shelf life. So the shelf life of our product is 12 to 18 months, which is really helpful versus like eight weeks, you know, so it, it, it can be, it can be pretty different. Um, I think when shelf life's a lot shorter, but for us, you know, we have some of that leeway and are able to make some decisions um, because our, a, our shelf life is so long, but B, because our lead times are relatively short with our co-packer. Um, so those two things allow build some flexibility into the forecasting model that have allowed us to be successful with it so far. How long in like a run, like does it take to actually like, like produce a product? How much like lead time do you need to give your, your manufacturer? At worst, probably like six weeks at best, like two to three. Wow. That's great. That's really good. Um, have you had any issues thus far with like dead stock or, or inventory that you're, you're un- unable to sell? A c- couple, but mostly like, you know, product quality issues that have happened or, you know, nothing super crazy. We've been able to flex pretty well, like if, if really big POs have come in, um, you know, because oftentimes these wholesalers have to give us at least 30 days notice. So typically, like if we have a huge PO that comes in, we have 30 days, we can we can turn around and call our manufacturer and they can say, OK, great. Yeah, we can produce in 30 days and we'll send it straight into wholesale. So that's been helpful, but you know, yeah, yeah, we've definitely had a couple here and there and have had, you know, hit with late fees and all that bullshit that everybody complains about on LinkedIn about the distributors. Of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. It's just a uh, standard operating procedure, right? <laughs> it's the game. Like, don't play the game, you know? Don't play the game. <laughs> have you had issues? I mean, know that obviously we're just kind of coming across this like huge supply chain crisis. I know you said that now shipping costs kind of going to and fro China aren't aren't bad but um of course that wasn't obviously always the case um and just globally but what were some of kind of like like your biggest challenges during that period or 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 the past few or or the past couple of years is it because you're kind of manufacturing everything in the u.s and co-packing did were you a bit insulated from it or um or were there was kind of some some challenges there yeah we've been a little bit insulated from it our our co-packer has has had like has done a good job contracting a lot of ingredients like you know they mostly produce granola so like a lot of the ingredients we're using they're contracting out for a long time so we are relatively protected with them but that's why you know recently we've seen a lot of margin erosion and i think it's because a lot of those contracts were up and now a lot of these suppliers are you know renegotiating and i don't know if they were you know their, their margins are probably lower and so prices have seen shifts in that and so we're seeing increases in ingredient costs now i feel like we're, we're like we've been slightly sheltered and our cost impact has been slightly delayed because of these longer contracts that our co-packer has held um so that, that i guess that's how i answer that is like i feel like when everybody was like freaking out i wasn't we weren't really seeing the impacts as much and now like we're seeing more of the impacts and on the margin erosion side of things like what what has been like the biggest key factor in terms of margin erosion has it been like uh like like, like um was it a particular ingredient? Was it, you know, which part of the supply chain? Yeah, it was, it was, it was like across many of the ingredients, right? So we talked about these contracts, these manufacturers have, like you could see a lot of them were shifting and like, you know, a couple points of increase across the board. Um, and then also on labor, we, our co-packers had challenges with labor and we have seen labor increase as well, which 
is tough. It's all tough. Yeah, very, very tough. It's tough building a brand. Um, I can only imagine. What would you value more? $100 of inventory or $100 cash today? And when I say inventory, I mean like the finished good product, not at retail cost, what you're paying, you know, for for the finished good. Cogs. Today, I would value cash. I could just use the cash. You know, I could use the cash today, so. <laughs> no, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of why why hundred dollars cash? It, it, it's kind of interesting because on this question we've had like a variety of responses. We're like, I bet. if you can, if you can kind of sell the, if you can sell the inventory, right? The hundred dollars inventory, then that inventory obviously, and if you have any type of margin, then like that inventory is gonna be worth more than hundred dollars cash, right? Um, but then of course, like today with with everything that's going on, like that obviously there's like marketing costs involved there too to, uh, uh, in order to sell it. So um, there's a lot of a lot of different things. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, Parker, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Mike. It's it's good to catch up. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Parker. Parker, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. I want to also thank Manufactured for producing this podcast. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. If you'd like to learn more, check out manufactured.com.